If you have your Bible, flip over to the book of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I've used a few movie illustrations recently, um, and I've heard from some of you that they made you feel old um, because of the dates of these movies, maybe in the 80s or 90s when they came out. And so I apologize for that, but I'm about to make it worse. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yep, yep. Now, now our Pioneers class is getting fired up. That's right. Came out in 1969, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. It's on the list, top 100 greatest movies of all time. I don't know who makes the list, but it's on the list. Um, kind of a Western film, uh, buddy comedy uh, film, uh, lighthearted Western, if you will. And uh, it's uh, Robert Redford plays uh, the Sundance Kid. Paul Newman plays Butch Cassidy, and they're, they're, they're train robbers. That's what they do. They, they go around robbing these trains on the frontier, and they find themselves in a, in a pickle. They have robbed this train, but they did not anticipate that the law would get after them as quickly as they have. And so they're being chased uh, by these lawmen. And they, are, they find themselves stuck in this one scene in the movie uh, where they're kind of huddled up uh, at the edge of this deep ravine, this deep cavern. Uh, and they, they look down into the ravine, and there's this river flowing through this thing. It looks almost like the Grand Canyon. It's huge uh, fall. But the, up uh, on the other side is, is the, the people who are after them. They're coming, they're, they're, they're chasing them down, and, and they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And they're, they're trying to figure out which way to go. Paul Newman's character, he wants to jump into the river and kind of float away. That's his strategy. Robert Redford's character says, no, no, no I want to I fight. I want to stay right here and fight him. And Paul Newman, there, who, who plays Bush, he's going back and forth with Sundance, and he's saying, you can't, you can't, we're not going to do that. There's too many of them. This is crazy. Our best path of escape is to jump into the river and, and, and float away. So they go back and forth and kind of banter. And finally, Butch is like, what's your problem? Like, why don't you want to do this? And Sundance can't take it anymore, and he turns to him and goes, I can't swim, okay? And he lets him know that he, he can't swim. That's why he doesn't want to jump from, into this canyon and, and float away. Butch thinks about it for a moment, and he, he, says, he says, well, it's the fall that'll kill you. <laughs> and the, the comedy of the moment is that, uh, is, is that Sundance is worried about a problem that he's not even going to get to face, because by the time he gets to the river, he's going to be dead anyways. The fall, jumping into a canyon is the problem, not, not knowing how to swim when you get to the bottom. To make it even more funny, they do end up jumping uh, into the river. This, is, this illustrates this kind of total missing of the point that, that Sundance and, and Butch in that moment are, are experiencing. They're worried about a problem that isn't even their biggest problem. They're focused on a secondary issue, and in all their back and forth over this secondary issue, they missed the primary issue. And this same phenomenon can happen in our faith sometimes. It can happen in our life and just the way we live and the way we go about our day-to-day routine. We can be so focused on secondary things that we miss what really matters. And Jesus is going to show us what that looks like in our text today and try to help us refocus on what matters most in life. And so if you have your Bible, flip over to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 today as we continue our study through the book of Mark. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, And when they returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, and he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your power, the power in this text that shows us that you can heal even the most terrible of physical circumstances of physical ailments. We saw that last week as we saw Jesus healing all sorts of diseases and illnesses that people had. We also saw last week that you have the power to heal us spiritually as well. And again, in this text, that's what you do for this man. You're more focused on his heart condition, on his spiritual condition than his physical condition. Lord, I pray that you would make that true of us as well. That we're more concerned about our heart and our standing before you than anything else that goes on in our life. And so, Lord, as we study this text, would you help us to see you clearly? And would you help us to love you for who you are and to respond the way you call us to? In Christ's name, amen. Church, this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Mark. And so... I've wrestled with what to say and how to say it, and I've thrown away a lot of stuff I want to say that I don't get to say, and so you're just going to have to hang with me today. But this is such a cool story. I, I taught this passage years ago uh, to, a, to a group of college kids, and I remember saying to them back then, I said, I wish more than any other passage in Scripture that this was done really well on film, that there was a, a visual representation, because I think this is such a like a hardcore moment. You know, in, in really good action movies, there's those really great scenes where the action hero does something really cool or awesome. He like walks away from the burning building behind him and he's not even phased by it. And you're like, man, that guy's cool, right? I feel like this is one of those moments for Jesus. It's kind of a mic drop moment, if you will. Thankfully, The Chosen, if you watch that, they have done this. They do a really good job with this scene uh, as well. It's worth, worth YouTubing or watching the whole series if you're interested. But this moment is so powerful because it encapsulates so much of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. You have this scene. They're back at Peter's house. You remember they were, they were at Peter's house before he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then Peter was like, hey, let's do some more healing. And Jesus was like, no, we're going to go and catch some other towns and preach. What well, says now in verse 1, they've come back to Capernaum. They're back kind of treating Peter's mother-in-law's house as, a, as home base. And so they're back in the house. And there, there, there's so many people have crowded around once they heard Jesus had come back to town, and the, the room is full. The commentators, they don't know exactly how big this house was, but there's absolutely no way there's more than 50 people in here, but it's just packed to the gills. Just imagine you're home, right, and you're in your living room, and you got somebody leading a Bible study, and you've just crammed every person you could possibly cram into the room to hear this person speak. And there's people outside the door waiting for their turn. They want to get in. They want to see what's going on. They want to be a part of this. And up comes these 
four friends who have a, a buddy who's paralyzed, can't walk. And they're carrying him on his mat, on some kind of stretcher type of a deal. And you can imagine yourself, place yourself in this scene. You can imagine them kind of looking through the windows going, can we get in there? No, there's like 17 people there. Can we get in through the front door? No, people are guarding the front door because they want their turn. They don't want to be jumped in line. Somebody in the group goes, hey, what about the roof? And they go, that seems crazy, but it just might work. So in, in, in first century uh, Galilee, they have uh, flat roofs generally relatively low. Uh, you would have been able to get up there with a, a small ladder or perhaps even by getting onto the neighbor's roof and kind of leaping over. They, were, they would have been close together. And these roofs are, they're, uh, they have planks, uh, uh, small planks of wood that are maybe about 18 inches apart and they, they would thatch them with kind of palm branches and stuff and they would put, uh, they would put earth on top to, and it would be kind of a thick, but it'd be an earthen roof and they would have to maintain them and change them all the time. The insurance companies were really bad about it. They're like, you got to change the roof. Those Floridians know what we're talking about. And so they would have to, they, so it was, it was something that a group of guys, if they got up there with their hands, could, could kind of dig through the roof and find an opening. And so that, that's going on. Imagine you're in the room with Jesus, right? And Jesus is talking. Maybe he's healing some people, doing a little teaching, and all of a sudden you feel some dirt falling and hitting you on the head, and you kind of look up, and you see a light opening up in the roof. The Lord could do that now. I'd rather he not at the moment. But, you know, you see, you, you see, you see kind of this them begin to tear away, and it's creating a little bit of a commotion. And the next thing you know, somehow they're maybe through ropes or maybe they've got a long sheet or something, they're lowering this paralyzed man down from the roof into the middle of the room. And that's the scene that's set for Jesus, for what is going to happen next. And you can imagine the excitement. You can imagine the tension. There's different types of people in the crowd, as we've seen. Some people that are um, in, in favor of Jesus, support him. Some people that are set against him. And, and it's in that scene that Jesus looks at this man in verse 5 Clearly coming to be healed, clearly coming to have his legs fixed and so he could be able to walk again. And Jesus looks at this man, and instead of saying, be healed or rise and walk, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. I would imagine it's a little bit of a disappointment in the room, right? I mean, they're, they're expecting to see something incredible happen. They're expecting to see this man's uh, muscles kind of begin to work and his nerves begin to function again and him to stand up. And they were, they're looking for this miracle. This man certainly believes that Jesus can heal him. That's why his friends have brought him here. And everybody's expecting Jesus to do this miracle. And Jesus goes, forget that. Your sins, those are forgiven. And in this moment, Jesus teaches us a lot about are real problems in life. And here's the first point, and maybe even the main point of the whole sermon is this, is that our greatest problem in this life is sin. Our greatest problem in this life is sin. This man was brought by Jesus, or brought to Jesus to have what he thought was the biggest problem in his life solved. I mean, you can imagine, he, he thought, if I could just walk, if I could just walk, everything would be okay. If I could just walk, I'd be able to get a good job and I wouldn't have to be a beggar and depend on my friends anymore. If I could just walk, I could play. Maybe, maybe the Lord might give me a relationship with a girl and I could have a family and we could have kids. And man, if I could just walk, I could get out on the floor and play with those kids. Maybe Miriam down the street might say yes to a date. If I could just walk, you know? 
And he probably sees his whole life through this lens of this is my greatest need. This is my greatest problem. But instead, Jesus skips right over his legs and says, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus do this? What's Jesus trying to teach us here? What's Jesus trying to show us here? I think first and above all, probably, as we've seen in the first chapter of Mark, we're trying to see, we're meant to see that Jesus really is the Son of God. That's what Mark's trying to teach us. Jesus really is the Son of God by what his actions, by his actions that he does, the things he does over what he says, we're meant to see that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divinity. He's not just some magician or some miracle worker, but he's God himself. And the fact that the scribes in this moment immediately, immediately believe Jesus to be blaspheming tells you that that's what Jesus is communicating, right? The, the scribes are going, whoa, 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 you can't say your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And Jesus, he didn't say this out loud, but the point he's making, he goes, exactly. I'm God, and therefore I can do that. Jesus, in this moment, for the first time in the gospel, Mark is explicitly claiming to be God. Second, though, Jesus is trying to teach this man, he's trying to teach the people that are in the room when this happens, and he's trying to teach you and I that our greatest problem in this life or the next is our sin. That's our biggest problem. And it's a problem that having legs that worked wouldn't solve for him. His greatest problem was his sin. And I gotta tell you, in this time and in our time, the world is trying to convince us that that's not true. The world we live in, the enemy that we have, is trying to tell us that our greatest problem isn't our sin. Our greatest problem is really anything else but our sin, right? If I would have asked you before I told you the main point of this sermon, what's your greatest problem right now in life? Some of you would have said, it's money, right? If I could, if I could just make enough to make the ends meet at the end of the month, it'd be good. If I could just save enough so I don't have to worry about retirement, everything would be okay. If I, if I just brought in enough to be able to pay for my kids' college, they want to go to college, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, and it stresses me out, but if I had money, it solves this problem. If I could just get out of this crushing weight of debt, everything would be okay. Money certainly is our biggest problem, right? That's what the world wants you to believe. Well, how do you solve that problem? You've got to go get more money. You've got to spend your life chasing this thing, pursuing it, doing everything you can to get more of it. Others of you, maybe if you wouldn't say money, you might say my kids are my biggest problem, right? Maybe you're having behavior issues with your kids. Maybe they're struggling in school. If you've got young kids, all you really want out of your kids is for them to just take a nap, right? You know? And if I could, yeah, there we go, got a young mom over there. If I could just get them to go to sleep and I could just have one hour of peace, that's, all my problems will be solved. When they get older, we worry about their grades. We worry they're going to get into college. They're going to find a good career. Are they going to be... Productive citizens, are they going to be normal? Are they going to be weird? Lord, please just don't let my kids be weird. Amen? <laughs> Lord, if you could just fix this problem in my kid's life, everything would be okay. Still others, maybe your biggest problem, you would think of it as your health, right? Lord, if you would take this cancer away. If you would take this cancer away, I'd start living the way I should. I'd start, I'd get, I'd get more time for the people I love. I'd get to do things for you even, God, to take this away. Or if you help me lose the weight I've been trying to lose, I'll have more energy, I'll be able to do more, be there longer for my kids. Whatever it is, Lord, would you fix my health? That's my biggest problem. We're heading into 
uh, election season. And so your TV is going to tell you that your greatest problem in the world is whatever the other party is that, that's out there. And they're going to tell you that if, if we can get the right politicians elected, everything's going to be awesome. Has that happened yet, by the way? But they'll convince us. It's the most important election ever. They'll tell you that every four years. It's incredible. And we keep having the most important election ever. If we get the right politicians in place, culture is going to be set up the way it's supposed to. The right policies are going to be implemented. The taxes are going to be just where I need them to be. Everything's going to be awesome. And that's our biggest problem. I don't know what it is. You go on and on and on. The world is trying to sell us a bill of goods and tell us, hey, there's your biggest problem. This is your biggest problem. This is your biggest problem. And the reality is that our greatest problem is none of those things. Our greatest problem is our sin. When I use this word sin, when Jesus uses this word sin, the, the best definition of sin I've, I've heard is this. It says, it's just any lack of conformity to the moral law of God. Any lack of conformity to the moral law of God. In other words, any way in our lives that we are out of step with what God has said, this is how you should live. When we step out of line in any way, we have crossed into what the Bible calls sin. And there's some basics about sin that every human being has to come to grips with at some point. And the first one is this, is that there is a God who created the world and everything in it. It's a foundational fact. None of this makes sense if that's not true. But there really is a God who created the world and everything in it. And because that is true, us as his creatures, his creations, are obligated to live in the way our creator tells us to. That God has a law and a standard that he demands we live by. That's the second thing we've got to come to grips with. The third thing we've got to come to grips with is this, is that when we don't live the way God calls us to and commands us to, we've committed sin, and that sin carries a punishment. Sin's a big problem. Sin's a big problem because it's universal. Every person within the sound of my voice, whether you're watching online or you're sitting in the room right here, every person in the world is infected with this disease of sin. You're born with it. You can't escape it. It's universal. This is... Everybody's got different problems in life, right? But everybody has this problem in their heart. The second problem is sin is incurable. It's a terminal disease. You can't root it out. You can't fix it. There's no medicine for it. There's no therapy for it. You can't do anything about your sin. You're stuck with it. It's not going anywhere. The third, our sin is punishable. Because God is just. We want God to be just. We don't want him to be unjust. That creates a whole another set of problems. Because God is a just and righteous God, sin must be punished. You can't let sin go unpunished. He would be unjust. And so therefore, all principles of justice tell us that the punishment must fit the crime. And here's the problem. We've committed these crimes against an eternal God, which means the punishment must be eternal in its nature as well. And so taken together, here's the reality. Every person ever born carries sin's nature and has committed sin in their lives. And as a result, that places every person under the condemnation of God. And the punishment for our sin is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's not a popular thing to say, but it's what the Bible says. Separated from God for all eternity. And so when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. He gives this man a gift that is infinitely greater than being able to walk. 
He skips right over this man's problem, what he probably thought was his biggest problem, and he solved the only issue that really matters. The enemy, the world, wants us to believe that any number of things are our biggest problem. Many Christians have believed that lie, and I want to stand here this morning on the authority of God's word and encourage you, beg you to not fall trap to that lie, that your sin is not a big deal and there are other problems bigger than that. We run around stressed about our money and our kids and our jobs and our health and our family and our politics and everything else, convinced if we could just get these areas of our life just right, everything would be great. And all the while, I can just imagine Jesus going, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't spend your life on these things that don't matter. Don't spend your energy, your thoughts, your stress even on these things that don't matter. Quit worrying about how you're going to swim in the river when you're never going to make it there because of the fall. This has implications for us as a church too. One trap that is really common for churches to fall into is making the means of the mission the end of the mission. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, when he does these miracles, when he heals this guy, and he's getting, all the people he's already healed, all the people who are going to see him heal, when he multiplies fish and bread to feed thousands of people, when he walks on water, all the miracles Jesus does, they are in service to his ultimate mission. They are not his mission. Jesus did not come to this earth to do miracles. Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross to redeem us from our sin. The miracles prove to everyone watching and to us that Jesus is who he says he is. We see it in this text. He says, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He tells the group right then, the miracle I'm doing, the point of it, is so that you'll know that the forgiveness of sins I offer is real. Churches sometimes rightly emulate Jesus' love and compassion for people's physical needs. We sponsor ACS. We put a new sign up in their, in their, in their front yard uh, this week. Arlington Community Services serves meals to the poor. It's an incredible ministry that we've sponsored for years and we're going to continue to sponsor into the future. But if that's all we do, boy, we've missed the mark. We don't sponsor ACS and help feed people who are hungry so that we can go, we did it, Lord. They're full now. Why do we do it? We do it so that we can then say, we give you this in Jesus' name because I want you to know the person who can fill you, not just with a meal now, but I want you to know the bread of life who can satisfy you for all eternity. That's why we do that. That's why we go help Lone Star Elementary, not so the kids that go to that school can have a nicer, cleaner, better school, but so that we might have a voice to speak into their lives and say, hey, you know why we do this? It's because we love you And we want you to know the one that loves you enough to lay down his life for you. People have asked me over the last six or seven months, hey, what's your vision for the church? What are we going to be about? What's the point of it all? This is it. To tell people that Jesus has come to forgive sins and they can find hope for all eternity in him. I stopped by my parents' house this past weekend, uh, went out of town for about 48 hours, and uh, the retreat center I was headed to was close, uh, retreat I was going to wasn't a retreat center, but the retreat I was close to was near my parents' house, and so I, I stopped in to see mom and dad on my way. 
And uh, my mom and dad live out in the country uh, in South Georgia. They are likely watching right now. Good morning to you. Um, they live on a dirt road out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, a couple of years ago, about two years ago, right now, actually, uh, I was at their house and I had driven down. I was living in North Carolina at the time and drove to their house all the way. Right before I drove to their house, I got an oil change because I needed one. It was a long trip and that's what responsible car owners do. So I, I made the six or seven hour drive to their house, spent a few days with them and um, about halfway through my, my time with them, I needed to run to town uh, to, to run some errands. So I hopped in my car and drove down their really bumpy dirt road. Um, and I got not very far at all, maybe a tenth of a mile, maybe two tenths of a mile. My engine started feeling like it was running abnormally rough. I don't have the nicest car on earth, but this was like abnormally bad. Like, What's going on here? It's running rough. I make it to the main highway and I hang a left onto the main highway and kind of hit the gas to really go. Now that I'm off the dirt road and I go, this is not good. And so I, I put it in reverse. I turn around. I was like, let me just get back to their house so we can figure out what's going on before I go any further and get stranded out here in the middle of nowhere. This is how all good horror movies start and I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> so I turn around and I'm driving back to my parents' house on their dirt road. Again, I haven't driven a total of more than four-tenths of a mile at this point. And as I'm driving in the road, I see something that wasn't in the road the first time I passed through there. I see, sitting in the middle of the road, an oil filter. Those of you who are gasping know that's a huge problem when your car loses its oil filter because that means the oil is gone too. And the, my engine has now bled out almost all of its oil and it's kind of like blood in a body. When it's gone, the thing's over. To make a long story short, but we limp back into the, into the yard, call the oil change company immediately. That changed my oil three days before. And uh, they were very kind. They helped us work it out. They got me connected with a, the, uh, an affiliate down there, actually, who actually drove out to the middle of the country and changed my oil in my parents' yard and put a new oil filter on it. They told me they had put the wrong one on. It didn't fit. A miracle of the Lord that I made it from North Carolina to South Georgia with the wrong fitting oil filter. That's another, we've, we've worshiped and thanked the Lord for that in the past. This could have been and almost was a death sentence for my engine, for my car. But imagine then, and as I'm having these engine difficulties, if instead I said, wow, this thing's running really rough. I better get to a car wash because this dirt road has mud all over my car. I go and get my car all shined up and cleaned up and polished. They do the wheels, they do the armor all and the tires. It's sparkling. You know what I would have ended up with? The best looking car that doesn't run in South Georgia. <laughs> my fear as your pastor church and my fear for our community is this. Is that many people who would even profess to be Christians spend their whole life worrying about how the car looks, and they haven't taken a second to think about the engine. They spend their whole life trying to make sure they have enough money, that their kids are good, that they're successful in their careers, that they can retire comfortably. And they never stop to address the actual problem in their life, which is that they stand before a holy God condemned with no hope. Jesus told his disciples, he told the crowds that the reason he came to earth was not to heal the sick, was not to feed the hungry, was not to house the homeless, was not to walk on water. He says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why Jesus came.
That's the point of the miracles. That's the point of the bread and the loaves. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of all of it, that we might be saved. This is Jesus' purpose. Everything else is a supporting role. So what does this mean for us? Very simply, it means that Jesus is our only hope, church. Jesus is our only hope. Look at verses 6 through 11 of our text this morning. It says some of the scribes are sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts. They're upset at Jesus. They say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And that's a good question, isn't it? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? On one hand, it's certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Nobody's ever going to know. Did he do it or not? I don't know. The guy looks the same to me. Right? You can say that. You can say that all you want. You have no idea if it worked. But if you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and he doesn't get up and walk, everybody knows this guy's a fraud. And so Jesus says, so that you can know that what I said about his sins is true, I tell you to get up and get out of here. Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And in that moment, I imagine there are a few gasps in the room as this man regains feeling in his legs for the first time. He probably stretches them out, and he puts weight on them, and he stands up for the first time in who knows how long. Jesus was this man's only hope for both, his legs to be healed and his sins to be forgiven. Church, many people are aware of their guilt before God. Many of us know deep down in our souls that we are not who we ought to be, that we've messed up, that we have failed, that we've fallen short in some way. You you may call it a, a guilty conscience, right? The Bible calls it the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin. We have just this awareness, right? This nagging feeling that we failed to measure up, this low-grade guilt that just kind of hangs around. And people deal with that guilt in a lot of ways. Some people try to balance the scales. They know I've done wrong things, so we're going to stack up some good things so it works out in the end. The problem with that is no amount of good deeds in this life can overcome sin committed against an eternal God. Others may try to self-medicate their guilt away. I'm going to drink until I feel happy, or I'm going to take this substance so it makes me forget what's going on. Or I'll self-medicate with entertainment. When Netflix says, do you want to watch the next episode? Sure, let's keep on going, right? Let me just escape and just forget what's going on in my life. Still others try to rationalize their guilt away. This is, you'll see people do this. They'll go, well, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. He did X, Y, and Z, and I only did X and Y. Right? If things are really bad, they pull Hitler out. So, well, Hitler did this. You know, I'm not that bad. It's like, well, great. What a standard. They try to rationalize it, right? The reality is, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach us here, is that there is only one way to have our sins forgiven, and that's for the person that we've sinned against to forgive us. Right? You can't go get forgiveness from someone you haven't sinned against, can you? Right? Like if, if, if I were to wrong uh, my wife and, and do something wrong, which has never happened, but if I were to do something wrong in our marriage, <laughs> right, I couldn't come over here to David and say, David, would you forgive me? He'd be like, for, I don't know. I mean, sure, why not, right? I'd still have a problem over here, though, wouldn't I? In the same way, the only way to be forgiven of our sins is to go to the one that we've sinned against and beg for forgiveness. Jesus is our only hope. 
When we sin, we're violating God's laws, and so only God can forgive us. Remember David in, in the Old Testament, right? King David, he, he sins, and he sins with, with uh, his, his friend, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, he's repenting. It's kind of a, a prayer of lament, a prayer of repentance from that sin. And in that psalm, this is interesting to say, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Isn't that interesting to say? He certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against Uriah. But he recognizes, above all, his sin is against God. And so we must go to God for forgiveness. The same law that teaches us right and wrong in the Bible also teaches us how we're forgiven. Book of Leviticus, which is probably many of you are right about at in your Bible reading plans and have bailed on it. I encourage you to keep going. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says that blood is the way that atonement is made for our sins. Only through blood. Jesus will find, as we continue to work through the gospel, Mark goes on to live a life that from the beginning was destined to end on a cross. There, blood pours from his head, from his back, from his hands, from his feet, from his side. And the Bible teaches that that blood and that blood alone can cover the sins that we have committed against God. Therefore, the only path for forgiveness is through Christ. There's no other way to have our sins forgiven. We must go to him. God in the flesh hung on a cross for us. How do we receive this forgiveness the same way the paralytic did? Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, talking about his friends who brought him, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Was this man forgiven because he was a good paralytic, because he did the right thing? No. Was he forgiven because he was righteous? No. He was forgiven because of faith. In this story, his friend's faith, he was a benefactor of it. But throughout Scripture, from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, the way we receive forgiveness from God is through faith. In the book of Genesis, it's talking about Abraham, this, this kind of very beginning of the creation of the nation of Israel. Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see it in this story here. Faith is what saves. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul summarizing the teachers of Jesus says that, for it's by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. He says this is a gift, not by works, so that no man can boast. The consistent testimony of the Bible is the only way to be forgiven of our sins is through blood, and the only way to appropriate that blood sacrifice to cover our sins is by putting our faith in Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to bring our good works to him because they won't save us. Jesus doesn't ask us to bring our righteousness to him because we don't have any. Jesus asks us to bring our faith and say, well, you're our only hope. And here's the good news. Jesus is ready and willing and eager to say, yes, your sins are forgiven. I don't know where you're at this morning. You could be in really one of two places, maybe three. In a room of this size, there's no question that there are people in this room who are not Christians, who have not put their faith in Jesus' death on the cross for their sins. And so if that's you, this text is for you. 
You can be set free from your sin. You can relinquish the guilt and shame that your sin carries, that you carry as you walk around with it. You can be free of it. And it doesn't require behavior. It doesn't require tithing. It doesn't require a great record of church attendance. It doesn't require helping enough old ladies cross the street. What does it require? It requires you calling out to God in faith saying, Lord, I can't pay the price for this, but you did. I believe. Would you forgive me of my sins? You know what Jesus' response is? Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. There are others, perhaps this middle group, who are convinced that's already happened for them. And yet, if you observe your life, you're still trying to earn your way to God. You come to church regularly. Maybe you even give. Great. You might even volunteer from time to time. But if I were to ask you, when you get to heaven at the end of your life and you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you in? There are people in this room who would say, because of all I did, to serve you, because I went to church like you told me to, because I got baptized like I was supposed to, because I gave and gave generously. And when that's your response, you've missed it. You've missed Jesus. You've missed grace. You've missed faith. You've made it about you. You've made it about what you'll do, what you've done, well, your obedience, your sacrifice, your giving, your anything. Friends, the only answer when you stand before Jesus and he says, why should I let you in? The only answer is to plead the blood of the cross because Jesus died for me. That's the only answer. So maybe you're here and you're like, I'm a Christian, I believe this stuff. And yet you're still trying to earn your way to God. I wanna encourage you to go back to the beginning. Go back to the gospel. Go back to salvation by grace through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. Lastly, there are those of us in the room who have put our faith in Jesus, who believe this gospel, who have heard this and go, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I'm thankful for it. Yeah, I want to live it with my whole life. And I want to encourage you, don't let it end with you. Go tell someone, please, about this good news. We live in a world where everyone around us is running around trying to solve problems in their life. They're trying to solve their money problem. They're trying to solve their family problem. They're trying to solve their relationship problem, their career problem, their happiness problem. And all the while, we're standing here with the answer to their real problem. We have Jesus. We have him hung on a cross for their sins. Church, let's don't be the people that keep that to ourselves. Let's be the people that go and tell. Their eternities depend on it. And so let's go and share with people who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Our response this morning is simple. It's either to repent and believe or to worship our Savior. One of the two. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, let me just listen to me just for a minute. Today is the day. Do not let another day go by without giving up your sin, without turning it over to Jesus and saying, I can't pay the price for this. I can't bear the weight of it. I can't stand in front of God an answer for it. I need someone to do it for me. Don't let another day go without trusting Jesus. Here's how you do it. It's not fancy. It's not complicated. All you do is you tell Jesus in your heart, Lord, I believe you died on a cross for my sins and you rose from the dead three days later. I turn from my sin. I want to follow you now. 
I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead three days later. I want to turn from my sins and follow you now. The Bible says, if you do that, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it says, if you do that, you will be saved. Jesus' response to that prayer is, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You have new life in Christ. The Bible tells us you should tell somebody about that when that happens. You shouldn't just keep it to yourself. So I want to encourage you to tell somebody this morning about it. I'm going to be hanging out in the back after the service today. I'd love to meet you. It's not going to be dramatic. We're not going to throw confetti out so everybody knows you're the person, right? We'll do that later. Just kidding. Just kidding, mostly. But I'll tell you what I will do if you tell me, hey, I prayed that prayer. I did put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to encourage the fire out of you. I'm going to celebrate with you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to hopefully give you some resources that help you walk with Jesus. And I'm going to send you out of here hopefully with a newfound joy, knowing that you're forgiven in Christ. So come meet me in the back. We'll talk about it. There's going to be some of you that don't want to do that. You're going to be scared, and that's fine for a time. The Bible says you do need to tell someone when this happens. She says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. In other words, hidden faith is a real faith. And so if this, this is something you want to believe, you need to tell somebody. You can email me, right? And then we'll have that conversation. But you can email me, pastor at fcbcjacks.com will do it. But tell somebody, tell the person that brought you this morning, tell somebody that Jesus has changed your life, that you have let him pay the price for your sins, okay? And if you're here and you are a believer, let's go from this place with joy. Can there be anything more joyful than being free of your sin? Can there be anything more joyful than knowing that we have heaven secured for us because of what Jesus has done? knowing that we don't have to pay the price for our sins. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So as Christians, we have freedom in Christ. Let's go from this place free and joy-filled, telling other people the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because of what you did for us on the cross. We love you because you don't, require of us good works to be saved. You don't require of us righteousness to be saved, but instead you help us do those things after we're saved. Instead, Lord, all you require of us to be saved is that we put our faith in you. Lord, what a great God that we serve that would offer such an incredible gift freely. Thank you for going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for rising from the dead and thereby granting us victory over Satan's sin and death, Lord, help us to respond to what you've done for us. Lord, don't let us spend another day of our lives pursuing things that don't matter, solving problems that aren't really our problem, but instead, Lord, help us to focus our lives and center our lives on the one who died for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.